This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You're listening to The New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a delight to have you with us today. Now, on this program, as many of you will recall, we invite a poet to choose a poem from The New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then we ask him or her to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. And I'm delighted to say that our guest today is J.D. McClatchy, J.D. McClatchy's collection, Hazmat, was nominated for the 2003 Pulitzer Prize. Among other honours, J.D. McClatchy is a recipient of the Arts and Letters Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and he serves as the editor of the Yale Review. Welcome, J.D. McClatchy. Nice to be here, Paul. Now, the poem you've chosen to read today is by James Merrill, a poem entitled 164 East 72nd Street, an address, I suppose, that is charged. It is. It was his New York address. It was an apartment that had originally been bought for pennies, probably, uh, hundreds of years ago by his grandmother and left to him when she died. So uh, there were. it's filled with memories of him as a boy being there with his grandmother and now living in it as a, as a grown-up. One of the subjects of uh, James Merrill's poems about his family is, of course, the relative uh, wealth, uh, perhaps the extreme wealth, indeed, of the family. The name Merrill, of course, one that we recognise from the banking business. There was some tension, I suppose, between his own sense of what he might be up to in the world and and what had happened uh, with the family. He was always uh, troubled, I think, by the very thing that gave him the ability to, to, to be a writer, that is time and discipline. He felt that he was hounded by that reputation. He himself lived extremely modestly, homes that neither you or I would want to uh, <laughs> be in. He never had a servant. He, he probably cut his own hair. It's not as if he was embarrassed by his wealth. He tried to give a great deal of it away to other artists and organizations by forming a foundation made out of his inheritance. Uh, But he still was haunted by the fact that people may have thought that he had bought his career or that he was somehow inauthentic uh, by coming from a wealthy background, uh, our instinctive suspicion of the privileged class in this country. And uh, he did the best he could with that. But it also became a subject of his – how could it not become a subject of his work? His marvelous poems about his family. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of the Victor dog, for example. Yeah, the broken home about his parents' divorce and so many of them. He used his own life quite deliberately and almost from the beginning. I think his early poems were 
fancy and uh, difficult as they all poems were in the 40s, early 50s. But as he gained a kind of mastery, he turned more to his own life as the subject of his work. And this poem, of course, falls into that category. Yes, indeed. Tell us a little bit about what uh, attracted you to this poem in particular. Well, it's an odd poem, more even autobiographical um, in its detail than other poems of his. It's an address that I visited myself often for parties he gave there. But there's a curious background uh, to the poem. It was published in The New Yorker in 1990. Uh, A few years before that, he took me aside one day and asked if he could tell me a secret. Uh, And the secret was that he had for a couple of years uh, then, been diagnosed with AIDS. Mm -hmm. He asked me to cover for him, to lie for him, to deny it. Uh, He had a mother who was still alive, and there would be perhaps an element of shame uh, involved in all this. But more than that, I think he wanted to be able to work for what time he had left. He didn't want to be a poster boy for a disease. He didn't want to be automatically identified as he had been by being rich. Now he didn't want to be identified as having been infected with, with AIDS. I, I was a good friend of his, so I agreed. But when you read a poem uh, that could have been just a charming description of life on the Upper East Side, he, he wrote poems about New York from urban convalescence really on, on through. He loved the city and the, ch- the constant change in the city. And here he's writing about the past with his grandmother and the present with a new lover he has and their new kind of life in an old apartment. Uh, but it's a poem about ambulances going by on the street. Uh, descriptions of, of uh, say, goings-on in a disco or a bathhouse are described as uh, things that twitched as on a slide, uh, so as if they were little bacteria or vi- mm-hmm. virus. There's hints all throughout here, and he wonders at the end what will happen when death comes, when the, the final ambulance comes to get him. So there's a great deal of a- anxiety, I think, but it's hidden underneath a charming description of his grandmother and his life in the city and whatnot. I find that gives an extra level and resonance to the poem. Do you think part of that is a hangover, as it were, from I mean, the main period of James Merrill's life where, let's face it, being gay was something that, alas, one really had to cover up? Yes, absolutely. Everything was coded. And, absolutely. Uh, that there's perhaps a hangover of that in this poem. Yes, I think that people of that generation never quite got over it. He said in one poem that he just stood in place and the closet collapsed around him, mm-hmm. uh, which is true. But it was still easier for younger generations to deal with these matters than for uh, people uh, born in the 20s and uh, growing up in the 50s and living in the 60s where it was still illegal. Uh, you could be thrown in jail. There was a lot of violence uh, against uh, gays and uh, that's – I don't think he ever got over those those feelings and those fears. Let's hear the poem and then we'll uh, talk a little bit more about it. So 164 East 72nd Street by James Merrill, read here by J.D. McClatchy. These city apartment windows, my grandmother's once, must be replaced come fall at great expense. Pre-war sun shone through them on many a Saturday lunch, unconsumed while frantic adolescence wheedled an old lady into hat and lipstick, into her mink, the taxi, the packed lobby, into our seats, 
whereupon gold curtains parted on Lacme's silvery, not-yet-broken-hearted version of things as they were. But what remains exactly as it was, except those pains? Today's memo from the Tenants Committee deplores even the ongoing deterioration of the widows in our building. Well, on the bright side, heating costs and street noise will be cut. Sirens at present like intergalactic gay bars in full swing whoop past us night and day. Sometimes, shocked wide awake, I've tried to reckon how many lives, 50, 100,000, are being shortened by that din of crosstown ruby flares wherever blinds don't quite... And shortened by how much? Ten minutes each? Reaching the emergency room alive, the victim would still have to live years just to repair the sonic fallout of a single scare. Do you ever wonder where you'll... Oh, my dear, asleep somewhere or at the wheel, not here... Within months of the bathroom ceiling's cave-in, which missed my grandmother by a white hair, she moved back south. The point's to live in style, not to drop dead in it. On a carpet of flowers nine levels above ground like purgatory, our life is turning into a whole new story. Juices, blue cornbread, afternoons at the gym. Imagine who remembers how to swim. Evenings of study or intensive care for one another, early to bed, and later, if the mirror's drowsy eye perceives a slight but brilliant altercation between curtains, healed by the leaden hand of one of us, a white-haired ghost, or the homunculus, a gentle alchemist behind them, trains to put in order these nocturnal scenes. Two heads, already featureless in gloom, have fallen back to sleep. Tomorrow finds me contentedly playing peekaboo with a sylph-like quirk in the old glass, making the brickwork on the street's far bright side ripple. Childhood's view. My grandmother, an easy-to-see-through widow by the time she died, made it my own. Bless her good sense. Far from those parts of town given to high finance or the smash hit and steakhouse, Macy's or crack, Saks or quick sex, this neighborhood saunters blandly forth, adjusting its clothing. Things done in purple light before we met, uncultured things that twitched as on a slide, if thought about, fade like dreams. Two Upper East Side boys again, rereading Sir Walter Scott or Through the Looking Glass, it's impossible not to feel how adult life, with its storms and follies, is letting up, leaving me ten years old, trustful, inventive, once more good as gold, and counting on this to help should a new spasm wake the gray sleeper, or to improve his chances when ceilings flush with unheard ambulances. 164 East 72nd Street by James Merrill, read there by J.D. McClatchy. What a virtuoso this poet is. He, he was. I mean, this first stanza is quite extraordinary. What he manages to pack in there from the, the Saturday lunch unconsumed, the old lady into her mink, the taxi, the packed lobby, into our seats. 
it's masterful. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also uh, – this is about going. He was a fanatic opera goer and, and he t- used to like to go with his grandmother. So the past is almost like a stage set for a, an old opera, uh, Lacme's Bell Song, The Silvery Tones there. Uh, and that leads into his very familiar poetic device of oh, but whatever remains the same, where the snows of yesteryear sort of thing. And he begins to see how – the building that he thought was some stage set is suddenly reality crashes in. The windows are collapsing. The, uh, the repairs need to be done. Ambulances are racing by, disturbing everything. That's another kind of set, the new New York, not the old one of his memories, but the, the, the present one of, of uh, noise and chaos and death uh, around him. And then we come into a kind of third set, which is him and his new boyfriend uh, in a uh, – like boys again. So this is his version of a second childhood in, in, the, in the old apartment. Wonderful moment there. Beautifully poignant moment. Intensive care. Mm-hmm. And then we come round the corner for one another. Yeah. But that primary meaning of intensive Absolutely. care. Absolutely. All throughout the poem, I think there are these little – hints of his fear of the imminence of death. And it's not fear exactly, but he knows what's coming as he knows these ambulances uh, one day racing by his apartment will stop for him. Well, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful usage there, it seems to me. Um, I'm stopping on it again. Uh, to improve his chances when ceilings flush with unheard ambulances. That word flush very interesting yeah. usage. It suggests maybe draw level with. As in flush with. Mm-hmm. And also, of course, there's the notion of the flushing, flushing out, which, um, you know, would suggest also that uh, there's some notion of things coming to uh, being level. Yeah, yeah. What else might we say about 164 East 72nd Street? Well, uh, the rhymes in the poem... Uh, where the the rather more off rhymes in the first two lines and more exact rhymes in the last two lines still give i mean I think he was very concerned in the last part of his career where his poems were at their most brilliant to have a conversational tone, witty, smart, charming, and whatnot, and with the flow of conversation and yet still maintain a kind of structure, a kind of enclosure to his images and ideas that these rhymes provide. You have a sense that things start out in a more formal way, they loosen and then they tighten back up again. There's a moment there in the third stanza to the end before the the last with a sylph-like quirk in the old glass making the brickwork on the streets far side. So there's a rhyme in there. Quirk Quirk and and brickwork. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about it again is that the word quirk is not in the final position on on the line, Mm -hmm. which is where we would expect it to be. So in a way, uh, it represents what it's describing. Yes. The quirk, the quirky aspect of this rhyme. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, that is um, something that uh, one really has to admire. I don't think there were many uh, poets of his generation who could use language more inventively, enchantingly, astonishingly, uh, really making transformations from line to line that uh, take the reader's heart by surprise. 
Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for introducing that poem to so many of us. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So, uh, J.D. McClatchy, in the August 15th, 2011 issue of The New Yorker, we published your poem, Yalalu, that's C-A-G-A-L-O-G-L-U, pronounced roughly speaking, Yalalu. <laughs> Jalalu, yes. Or Jalalu. I'm almost there. Give us a little bit of the context for uh, Jalalu. Jalalu is a name of a neighborhood in Istanbul, and it's also the name of the most famous uh, Turkish bath in in Istanbul. It was built by Sultan Mehmet II in 1714, donated to the city, and has been in constant use since. Uh, it's a masterpiece of Ottoman architecture. And uh, I went there, I don't know, a couple of years, a few years before this poem was written, and uh, tried here to describe my experience uh, of... Um, I don't often go to Turkish baths, especially in this one in Istanbul, I thought. It's odd. Uh, they, of course, they have a men's section and a woman's section. And they also – you buy a certain level of service. Uh, so I thought that I would buy the most expensive, which was called the Oriental Luxury Service, uh, which entitled you to various ministrations by the attendants. And uh, so this is about that experience of going in, having a Turkish bath, and a little meditation on other kinds of um, experiences that happen in, in mist and fog. So let's hear a Jalalu by J.D. Matlachi. Jalalu. From a cistern in the dome, the daylight drips, while the calls to prayer from the quarter's seven minarets overlapping tape loops of submission, slip down through the arching crescent lunettes cut into the air as if the vault itself had loosened its grip. I am on my back, listening to the tattoo of clogs crisscrossing the sopping white marble floor inlaid with veins of still darker matters to pursue. A skittish gleam accents like eyeshade a fountain's boss in the corner alcove, where hot and cold make do in a basin Tony Curtis and Franz Liszt both stared into once. Stardom is a predictable fate. The point is forgotten, but somehow still missed. Gods, whenever they enunciate, long for the romance that ironclad heroes peering through the mist or mousy adolescent girls both provide. The same unlikely places, a battlefield or grotto, are returned to, while again the hollow-eyed ogle in flagrante devoto and obey shyly the scrambled revelations so true and tried. Congestive crotch-scented vapor has congealed into beads that skid along suction knots and shadow ends abutting my slab. Eager for an ordeal, the illustrated brochure commends as a bath to rid the body of its filth, both real and unreal, 
I have bought their boast. We make you feel reborn for fifty euros. Pinched and idly gestured toward a plinth, two centuries of customers have careworn to a shallow trough not quite my length. I'm forced to burrow into a pose much more flagellant than fawn. The sodden towel is too heavy now to hold itself across me. And there is the pasha's bay window, the shriveled bulblet, the whole ill-shaped scaffold of surplus fact and innuendo, from arthritic scree to the congenital heart flutter's toehold. The attendant walks up and down on my back, pacing the problem, then plucks, then mauls, then applies a foam he scrubs in until it causes an attack of radiance, the world's palindrome, suddenly solemn, suddenly seeming to surrender its knack for never allowing us simply to want what we already have, or are, or perhaps could have been. His hand signal to get up seems like a taunt. I lie there, my fist under my chin, senses unsteady, something gradually like a tiny font coming into focus. I sit up and start to notice small bits of grit when I run my hand over my chest. But wasn't this debris the chief part of the package deal? The makeover and its benefits? In the fog, I can't really see what trademark schmutz the Oriental Luxury Service has failed to wash off. So I put it in my mouth and taste two dank gobbets, salty, glary, and grayish, I should have recognized as the waste that was my old self. A loofah having scraped it from each crevice and bulge, from every salacious thought and deed, every good one, too. It is the past, not just what is wrong. It is the embarrassments we still breastfeed that we absentmindedly so long to shed. A new you, oneself an innate second person, succeeds. How do the saints feel when they fall to their knees, God coming to light? Less ecstatic than ashamed, I fear, of bodies never worthy of being seized, Encumbered by the weight of a tear, in hopeless hindsight, they see all that the flesh can never appease, all that the flesh is obliged to mortify. Here I am, laid out, looking up to where nothing appears, hardly wondering why nothing satisfies, and yet saddened that it's all so clear. Tulip waterspouts trickle, reservoirs deep underground reply Jalalu by J.D. McClatchy read there by himself I was struck as I listened to you read the poem with that uh, reference to the reservoir at the very end I was reminded of a perhaps a reservoir of sorts for this poem and would that by any chance be the work of one W.B. Yeats a poet who was a master of the stanzaic pattern and I think the way you handle these stanzas here is really wonderful. Two of his most famous poems set in Byzantium, mm -hmm. which of course is the town in which this uh, spa is set, all this focus on the body, the, not the dolphin so much, but the, 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 the pure body. Is yet someone who comes to mind for you much? No. 
<laughs> Sorry. I read him. Uh, I admire him no end. Not the early Yeats. I, I, it's the later Yeats uh, that most everyone else loves as well. Uh, he's not a poet whom I reread as often as I reread, say, uh, Auden uh, uh, or even Eliot. But I admire his poems uh, as much as anyone can. I find that very interesting because, I mean, he is, I think, in, for the 20th century, the master of the stanza. Of course, he's not the only person who wrote in, in uh, rhyming stanzas. But it's um, it's odd, perhaps, to me that uh, he doesn't mean a little more to you. Why I prefer, say, Auden to Yeats is that he can get more into his poems than Yeats does. Yeats stays still at an elegant um, and often profound distance from his subjects. He views them almost from a godlike uh, perspective. Auden seems in the midst of everything, uncertain, questioning, and all of the bits and indignities of the world crowding into the poem. I mean, he's always admired as a poet who could write about anything. I, I don't think Yeats wanted to write about everything. He does congratulate himself in some sense on being down there where all the ladders start. Yeah. He would like to have that perspective from below looking up in, in the foul rag and bone shop. Uh, but as you say, his perspective is more often that of looking down. Yes, I think so. Tell me a little bit about how this poem got written. Did the form come to you as you embarked on the poem or did you think of it as a possible uh, template for the poem before you started off? I did. Uh, I often feel that way. In this case, it's both rhyme and syllabic count, so they, it's a sort of feat of engineering. I wanted uh, this elaborate scaffolding that rhymes A, B, C, A, C, B, A, and then all of the lines... Uh, are indented in certain ways and all the syllables are exact in each stanza. That just becomes a kind of challenge. If I know what the uh, the urn looks like before I pour into it, uh, it helps me to gauge how much water I need uh, to fill it and uh, how quickly to do so. Uh, so, yes, I often like to know where I am going before I set out. Do you have a sense as you embark on a poem like this of how long it might be? No, I couldn't predict that. Obviously, partway through a poem, something you write suggests something that should be added uh, to fill out what you've written. So, no, I can't do that exactly. But I mean, I can if I'm writing a sonnet, say, where there are artificial uh, limits, but not in something like this, which is more open-ended. I think that is something that perhaps the poem will teach you as you're writing mm -hmm. it, in something of its pace, the slightly leisurely. Yeah. Uh, aspect of this, yes. I mean, wonderfully leisurely, particularly given the subject mm -hmm. <laughs> aspect of the poem. It's a great mode for discourse, disquisition, musing. I think so. I mean, uh, it, rather like the Merrill poem, uh, which we were just talking about, they're poems of a middle length. Uh, they're not the short, intense lyric poem. Uh, they're not long rangy narrative uh, poems. There's something in between with narrative elements in them as well as lyric and of a length that seems to allow you to expand enough on what you want to say and what is suggested by what you do say. Uh, and yet in both poems, there's a kind of control kept on the shape and pace of the poem all the way through. So it's a very attractive 
format, I think, for a poem. I've been very interested uh, several times in the course of uh, presenting the New Yorker podcast, and perhaps I shouldn't be surprised by this, that there's often a relationship between the poem that the poet chooses and the poem by himself or herself. Well, when I was asked to pick uh, a poem by someone else, and I thought I didn't, I couldn't go through the thousands of poems that have ever been published in the New Yorker, I thought I would pick a poem by someone wh- whom I knew well and was close to, and, uh, and and whose work I admire no end, and was certainly a favorite uh, in the New Yorker as well. This is one of the last poems he published in the New Yorker before his death. J.D. Mitlachi, thank you very much indeed, both for reading. Uh, 164 East 72nd Street by James Merrill, as well as your own poem, Jalalu. I think I'm close enough there in the pronunciation. And both of those may be found on newyorker.com. J.D. McClatchy's most recent collection of poems is Plundered Hearts, uh, new and selected poems. James Merrill's final book, which was published posthumously, was co-edited, as it happens, by J.D. McClatchy and Stephen Yenser, and that, of course, was and is collected poems. J.D. McClatchy, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Paul. A real pleasure. You can subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast and the Political Scene Podcast in the iTunes Store. And you can hear more poetry read by the authors in the tablet edition of the magazine. For the moment, I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, goodbye. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.